Religion has profoundly influenced the sweeping American narrative, perhaps more than any other force in our history, from the time before European colonization to the present. The Startup National Museum of American Religion is working to build a museum in the nation's capital that will share the story of what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, inviting all to explore the role of religion in shaping the social, political, economic, and cultural lives of Americans, and thus America itself. I'm your host, Chris Stevenson. Join me for our 12-part podcast series, Religion and the American Experience, as we follow scholars deep into America's religious history and learn how it can inform and animate us as citizens, grappling with the complex questions of governance and American purpose in the 21st century. Episodes will be released every Monday between now and the end of the year on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Religious freedom is everywhere in the news. It is invoked, it is debated, it is implicated, it is litigated, it is ridiculed, it is derided, it is loved, it is honored, it is before the Supreme Court and school boards, and it is found in religious sermons. The National Museum of American Religion offers to shed light on its history in the hope that Americans, knowing some of its history, will understand this governing principle better, how revolutionary it is, how fragile it is, how dynamic it is, and how indispensable it is to America in fulfilling her purposes in the world, and so commit to protect and preserve it. Today we have with us Tisa Wenger, Associate Professor of American Religious History at Yale Divinity School, to show us some of this history of religious freedom by discussing her book, Religious Freedom, A Contested History of an American Ideal. Professor Wenger's research and teaching interests include religious encounters in the 19th and 20th century, United States, the cultural politics of religious freedom, and the intersections of race, religion, and empire in American history. She is also the author of We Have a Religion, the 1920s Pueblo Indian Dance Controversy and American Religious Freedom. Thank you, Tisa, for being with us today, and thank you for doing the hard work of writing this book. It is terrific. More importantly, the information you share seems critical to me as an American citizen trying to do his civic duty and understand the religious freedom I find everywhere about me in the public square. Listeners, be sure to follow our podcast series, Religion in the American Experience, which can be done easily by clicking on the podcast tab at storyofamericanreligion.org. Tisa, before we go into details, can you tell us why you decided to write this book? Sure. Thank you, Chris, and thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. Um, this book, my, my thinking about this book really grew out of my first book, which you mentioned, um, We Have a Religion on the Pueblo Indians. And in that book, I uh I didn't start with the topic of religious freedom, but I ended with the topic of religious freedom because I um, ended up arguing in that book that the Pueblo Indians, who are a group of Native nations in New Mexico, um, began to define their traditions as religion by making a religious freedom argument um, in response to the suppression of their traditions by the U.S. government in the early part of the 20th century. And so they were making a claim for religious freedom, right? And in order to do that, you have to say, we have a religion, which is what they said, and that ends up being the title of the book. So coming out of that book, I was interested in asking a similar set of questions on a much broader scale. So in other words, uh, who are the people that are calling for religious freedom? Who's invoking this ideal towards what ends? And so I started thinking about it as a, in a very um, big picture kind of way. I was interested. I cast a very wide net for research. Who's invoking this idea? Who's talking about religious freedom? Um, toward what ends, what, and I started thinking about it as kind of the cultural and, um, politics of religious freedom, right? right? What does it do for a group of people to call for religious freedom? I mean, religious freedom is such a 
foundational American ideal. Americans uh, really since the time of the revolution have taken great pride that, you know, we are a nation of religious freedom. We kind of, you know, pioneer this ideal. And so because of that, um, the idea of religious freedom or religious liberty has a great deal of kind of cultural and political purchase. If you claim religious freedom, maybe you get taken a little more seriously than if you if you didn't, right? right? But in order to do that, you're then saying that the the demands that you're making um, are religious demands, and sometimes people are then kind of reframing um, the way they think about themselves, their communities, right. their traditions as religious in order to make that claim. So um, I originally wanted to write the book as a kind of new way of thinking about the history of American religious freedom all the way across US history. And that ended up being a much too ambitious goal. And so the book, as it uh, turns out, focuses sort of basically between around 1890 up through the Second World War, and each chapter kind of focuses on a different group of people. Right. Um, okay. But I focused that way in part because I was, I mean, I was already an expert in the history of that period, but I was finding the most interesting stories in that period. And it was also a period that um, other historians writing about religious freedom usually didn't talk about much, right? So most most histories of American right. religious freedom either focus on the revolutionary period, like how did the First Amendment come to be, um, or they focus on the kind of tw later 20th century up to the present, which is the period when the U.S. Supreme Court has really um, prior, where religious freedom, lots of religious freedom cases have come to the Supreme Court. Right. And there's, there yeah. Particular reasons for that historically that we don't need to go into right now, but the the reality is that most histor few historians had written about religious freedom in the period that I'm covering, so that's why I wanted to do that. Okay, okay. well, uh, importantly, and, and thank you for that um, explanation of why you did it, and we're going to get to some of these examples that you you captured in your, you know, as you cast your net broadly and widely, um, and importantly, in the book. Uh, and in our discussion, and you mentioned this a little bit, you are not in this book defining religious freedom. Instead, you are, and I want to make this clear to the listeners, you are investigating how and why it has been used in the history of the United States. And that's super uh, enlightening. And one of your discoveries is that, quote, and I'm quoting from your book, religion and religious freedom are inevitably implicated in relations of power and that the discourses of religious freedom have historically intersected with American formations of race and empire, close quote. Tisa, can you elaborate a bit on this point, simply so we have a framework to understand the one or two examples that we're going to talk about? Sure, I'd be glad to. And you might be interested to know, and your listeners might be interested to know, that my working title for the book, for most of the time I was working on it, took me about... Um, you know, eight, seven or eight years to write this book. My working title wow. was Race, Empire, and American Religious Freedom. My publisher said, uh, they, the publisher didn't like the that as the title. They said, do you want to sell any copies of the book? <laughs> they thought it sounded too, like, uh, I don't know, abstract or, you know, I found religious freedom implicated in relations of power. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is, first of all, that um, who gets to claim religious freedom? Um, I found that in American history, um, you know, Protestant Christians in particular have tended to, first of all, to, to see themselves at the center of the American story. And part of the way that they lay claim to that identity as being the sort of um, central Americans, or I mean, that's the wrong phrase, but um, to, to be the normative Americans, right, um, is 
is through this language of religious freedom that that Protestant Christianity somehow is um, the originator of religious freedom. Protestant Christianity broke away from Catholicism in order to have a kind of freedom of conscience, freedom to read the Bible for themselves. Um, and, you know, so there's this kind of um, hierarchies of civilization that Protestants claim to be at the pinnacle of civilization, and white Protestants in particular. And I, I just saw this um, over the course of um, so much of this history, the Protestants are claiming this, and so then um, they you the, they see other people as in need of um, being civilized, right? And part of the way they need they need to be liberated from. I mean, I see this, for example, in relation to Native Americans, whose traditions are deemed not only kind of savage or heathen, but they are uh, seen as kind of enslaving. It, people are quote enslaved to their heathenism. And so they need to be Christianized in order to be civilized and liberated. So okay. there's that kind of um, hierarchy of race and empire that um, the the kind of this these cultural politics of religious freedom end up um, reinforcing us kind of civilizational hierarchy that on in in which, white Protestants place themselves at the top because they see themselves as the originator of religious freedom and other okay. people need to be freed from their kind of tyrannical um, religious traditions. Does that make sense? Yes, yes that's helpful. Um, you also write in your book uh, that you want to challenge easy assumptions about religious freedom as a universally beneficent ideal, and that your book offers a cautionary tale, a corrective to overly celebratory histories of this freedom. But I'll also say, you also write that you are not saying religious freedom is inherently bad. So can you just elaborate briefly the, the, the assumptions you're trying to challenge? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, another way that... Um religious freedom has intersected with racial politics in American history is around uh, slavery and segregation, right? So white Christians in the South before the Civil War said that um, slavery was part of their religion, that slavery was in the Bible. And therefore, uh, if abolitionists wanted to outlaw slavery, they would be violating the religious freedom of um, good Southern Christians, right? Of course, they were not taking into account the um, enslaved people who's, who were forbidden from any kind of assembly, um, or even if that were a religious assembly, Christian or not, right? And so, Obviously, the freedoms of enslaved people were being violated here, but those weren't the freedoms that um, that these white Southern slaveholders were concerned about or had in mind. And so, um, so when you you my argument about um, religious freedom not being inherently bad, I mean, so there's a kind of cautionary tale there that. Um, that religious freedom has been used towards violent ends and exclusionary ends and oppressive ends, right? And that slavery cases is a good example of that. But um, that doesn't mean that religious freedom is always used in that way, or that's the only way that it's used, right? So to kind of extend the case about um, slavery, um, African-Americans before the Civil War, during the time of slavery, and ever since have also laid claim to religious freedom, right? So um, black abolitionists pointed out that slavery violated the freedom of conscience of the slaves, as well as, of course, the bodily liberty and every kind of liberty of the slaves. And so they pointed to the hypocrisy of um, 
of white slaveholding Christianity, people like David Walker in his famous appeal and Frederick Douglass pointed to the hypocrisy of white slaveholding Christianity, which claimed to value freedom and religious freedom, but prevented the slaves from having any such freedom. And so this was a way in which um, what I call religious freedom talk, right? The sort of the way that people talked about religious freedom and invoked this idea could also be used towards um, liberatory ends for oppressed people. And I just see that um, throughout this history that every group of people, because of the kind of cultural power of religious freedom, lay claim to it for themselves. And and they push towards more expansive definitions of religious freedom, right? So I don't think that it has any sort of um, inherent or necessary meaning that it 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 means what people um, make it mean, <laughs> how people use it, right? Uh, or okay. as varied as the groups that appeal to it. Okay. Okay. Helpful. Let's let's dive into uh, the first example. And the first example we'll discuss that you uh, have in your book is it comes out of the U.S. victory in the 1898 Spanish-American War, which resulted in American ownership of Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Philippine Islands. You write that in the war's wake, quote, religious freedom talk strengthened Anglo-Protestant claims to racial religious supremacy, both in the United States and in its colonial possessions and that religious freedom talk fostered the gradual expansion of whiteness to include Catholic and Jewish immigrants, close quote. Can you tell us this story? Yeah, this is in, such it, an Im- Of course, abbreviated. Case, I think. It's, it's, Go ahead. It's, it's in abbreviated form. It's well laid out in the book, uh, but give us an abbreviated story for the listeners. <laughs> I'll do my Obviously. best. <laughs> there, yeah, there, there's absolutely a lot to say. And there this is. is such an interesting case to me, in part because, I mean, when I mentioned earlier that I cast a very wide net for research, and um, when I started the research for this book, I did not imagine that the Philippines would be part of the story. Um, but... I kept finding mention of the Philippines in the Spanish-American War, and um, so that was a surprise to me. And I found a newspaper article from 1898, which is right after the United States um, declares victory against Spain in the war. Um, The U.S., many of your listeners might not even be familiar with the history of this war, because I think it's not one that's talked about or or very much alive in American cultural um, historical memory. I agree. But the U.S. had originally intervened on to uh, aid Cuba in its fight to uh, throw off Spanish imperial rule. And there was a huge debate about whether the U.S. would then itself colonize Cuba um, and, and take over rule of Cuba, um, which eventually, which did, which did not happen because there was a congressional resolution barring President McKinley from doing so. But the co- Congress never made a resolution barring the the Americans from taking over some of Spain's other former colonies, and the Philippines is one of those. But before the peace treaty with Spain in 1898, I found this newspaper article that talked about the discussions that President McKinley was having with his cabinet. And they agreed before going into these peace treaties, um, they weren't even sure if they were going to demand that Spain, you know, or that if they they hadn't decided necessarily to take over control of the Philippines as a U.S. colony, right? The U.S. was becoming, was kind of flexing its imperial muscles at this time. But they agreed that they were going to insist at a minimum that Spain open up the Philippines to U.S. commerce. So capitalism is really important. And number two, that Spain would grant religious freedom to the people of the Philippines, and number three, that Spain would not cede any of the islands to another imperial power. So I thought to myself, like, why is religious freedom so important in this story? Right. Um, 
why is religious freedom one of the three sort of basic demands that President McKinley would make to Spain? Um, and why have other historians who write about the Spanish-American War not paid attention to this? And why isn't this part of our histories of American religious freedom? This should be part of our histories of American religious freedom. So I start the book there because I just thought it's an unexpected place to start a book that is a, a history of American religious freedom. We don't think about that. We don't think about its kind of relationship with U.S. empire building at the end of the 19th century. And here's a really kind of clear case. Um, and so, you know, what is the answer to that? Why is religious freedom one of McKinley's kind of core demands? And what I end up um, arguing and the conclusion that I come to in this chapter and in the book is, I mean, first of all, because Spain is obviously historically Catholic, right? And it had uh, brought Catholicism to the Philippines um, in the United States and um, among the kind of Protestants who had controlling authority within the United States. There is what we call a kind of black legend of uh, Spanish colonial cruelty that can't be separated from Spanish Catholicism. So the idea here, and this was a kind of myth that le helped legitimate American colonial conquest, because the idea was Spain had been uniquely oppressive and violent towards its colonial subjects, and they had forced and imposed a kind of tyrannical Catholicism that had kept the people of the Philippines, um, you know, sort of subordinated, had kept them at a limited level of civilization. And so America needed to come in and bring freedom to the Philippines, um, bring capitalism, bring free markets, and bring free religion. And so often in American history, we see this kind of, and and I would say in the present as well, we see this connection between free markets and free religion that, uh, that legitimizes American imperial power. Of course, the people of the Philippines uh, didn't like that idea. They uh, were really angry when they learned that the United States, uh, the people of the Philippines, just like the Cubans, had been fighting for their own independence from Spain. And when the U.S. entered the Spanish-American War, the Filipino, um, the Philippines had created their own um, revolutionary government. They had declared independence. They had um, ratified their own constitution that was in many ways modeled after the U.S. constitution. They saw... Um, the president of the independent Philippines, Emilio Aguinaldo, modeled himself after George Washington. They saw themselves as following in the kind of American revolutionary principles of freedom and independence. And they thought that the United States was helping them in that goal, right? And so then when the United States made this peace treaty with Spain that um, where Spain basically sold the Philippines to the United States. Filipinos were furious, um, but they were entirely kept out of the, the, the peace treaty. They were not even allowed in the room to negotiate. It was just like they were being signed away and sold away as possessions. Um, so I write in the book then about how religious freedom talk also became important for Filipinos in they, as I was saying, you know, modeling themselves after kind of an American revolutionary model, they were laying claim to the status of kind of civilized moderns. We are also civilized. We are also committed to free principles of freedom and civilization. Um, but yet the United States came in in this very patronizing way. Oh, we, we are bringing you freedom. Um, but it's a funny way to bring someone freedom to colonize and control and govern them and impose your own model of what think, what what a government should look like. Can you tell us how uh, there's one particular story uh, about how the Sultan of Sulu uh, used religious freedom talk on behalf of his, of his people? 
Yeah, you know, that's one of my favorite parts of the book, too, where um, Sulu and Mindanao are in the southern Philippines and a very uh, separate, very different history than um, the northern Philippines. And in fact, Spain had only, um, you know, relatively recently conquered or you know, colonized that part of the Philippines. These parts of the Philippines are historically Muslim and remain majority Muslim um, today. And so the Sultan of Sulu was a Muslim leader. And uh, the um, Sulu and Mindanao were not really, they didn't see themselves as having common cause with the um the rest of the Philippines were not part of the kind of Philippine War of Independence, although they certainly didn't want to be under the thumb of either Spain or the United States either, but didn't see themselves as being a kind of part of a Philippine national project that was defined by um, mostly Catholic Filipino ilustrados who'd been educated in Spain, right? They, they had a very different set of... Um, cultural and political and religious ideals. So the Sultan of Sulu was the most important um, Muslim called um, the Muslim people of the Philippines were often called Moros. So the, uh, the most important Moro leader at the time. And he made a separate peace treaty with the United States in 1898. And from his perspective, he was basically wanting to preserve Moro sovereignty as much as possible, right? Moro self-government. And he had seen his treaties with Spain not as kind of surrendering his own authority as the as a Moro leader, but more as a treaty where of kind of mutual protection and made this treaty with um, US General John Bates in 1898. Um, guaranteeing that the United States would respect all of the religious customs along with the rights and dignities of the Sultan and his datus. And um, this for the Sultan of Sulu was a kind of like a collective right. His concern was with sovereignty. The United States, as I mentioned, the, Fili the, the independent Philippine Republic turned its war for independence against the United States, right? So then the United States is fighting a war against the, Fili there's a Philippine-American war that kind of <laughs> um, takes off and there, so the US is fighting a new war. Now the, the war with Spain is over. Now they're fighting uh, against Philippine revolutionaries. And so the United States doesn't have much incentive to go in and try they the incentive of the United States is to keep the Moros from joining the Philippine Republic in fighting. And so the United States is very happy to kind of give the Sultan of Sulu whatever he wants as long as he's going to accept sort of nominal US sovereignty over the islands. So for the United States um in governing colonial authorities at the time. They're like, okay, you know, you govern yourselves internally. And the Sultan of Sulu used religious freedom in a very expansive way to claim um, sort of Moro customs, practices, traditions, um, authority, pretty much across the board. And that worked for him up until the time that the Philippine-American War started to die down in the North. And then the United States, for a whole variety of reasons, um, wanted to kind of go in, crack down, exercise more um, control over the internal affairs of the Moros. And then there, there um, became came to be a war with the Moros as well. Um, it was very violent kind of colonial crackdown uh, massacre of Moro people in the Philippines by the U.S. Uh, Army in the early 20th century in 1903-1904. But throughout this time, right, the Moro, the Sultan of Sulu keeps um, 
claiming a very expansive definition of what should be covered by religious freedom, the U.S. generals, um, you know, increasingly weren't having it. And they began to insist that the Sultan of Sulu needed to be understood um, only as a religious leader and not as a political leader, that um, they began to insist, you know, that on a kind of separation of church and state within um, Moro society. And so, you know, you can have religious freedom, but that doesn't mean that you have the right to um, uh, control tributes or to, uh, or have, you know, various other policies uh, over the government. You have no right to uh, control the government of, of Sulu or of the Moros anymore. So that was kind of the tension. Is Does religion include the sort of apparatus of government or the, the various kinds of practices and traditions? Right. It's a really kind of interesting tension that played out there. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought all that to light with the Spanish-American War and uh, and the and the role that religious freedom played there. We have been talking with Tisa Wenger, associate professor of American religious history at Yale Divinity School, about how and why religious freedom has been used in American history, as presented in her book *Religious Freedom: A Contested History of an American Ideal*. At the post World War One peace conference. Religious freedom was discussed at length in context of Jews in Europe, but you write that neither the racial equality nor religious freedom provisions ultimately made it into the covenant. Can you tell us why this was the case? Yeah, and this is about the negotiations for the League of Nations, which was the kind of post-World War I, um, maybe e equivalent to what the United Nations became after the Second World War. And really, it was about sovereignty and national sovereignty, particularly for um, the United States and other major nations after the First World War, who were kind of controlling the debate. Um, the issue of religious freedom becomes entangled with um, a racial equality clause that was proposed by the Japanese to prohibit discrimination against the citizens of other states. Um, and this upset the United States and other countries that had racial exclusionary policies. So the United States wanted to be able to exclude Japanese and Chinese immigrants, for example, and Japan, you know, um, didn't like that. So it was like, you know, both sides wanted um, sovereignty within their own um, nations. Wilson, Woodrow, President, U.S. President Woodrow Wilson was pushing for religious freedom rather than for national um, minority rights. Um, the, the major concern for a lot of people, including for American Jews who had sent um, delegates to the peace conference at Versailles, was um, for the persecution of Jews in Eastern Europe. And there were, you know, new countries being set up, new nations being set up in Eastern Europe. There's a lot of anti-Semitism in that part of the world, as well as in the United States at the time, in fact. Um, the new, newly formed nations of Eastern Europe were forced to sign peace treaties um, guaranteeing these rights internally, including um, religious freedom for minority populations within their borders. Um, but the United States did not want to um, put religious freedom a racial equality in the um, covenant, in the overall covenant for the League of Nations, because um, it was, you know, the U U.S. is keenly aware, and it's being criticized by other countries, such as Japan at the time, for racial discrimination within its own borders, particularly against African Americans, but also against Asian immigrants, right? 
So it was basically like the covenant is not going to have, if the covenant's not going to have racial equality, then it's not going to have religious equality either. Those two issues kind of became intertwined. Okay. Well, um, let's let's move from from that uh, peace conference back over to the United States. And during the early 20th century, uh, with the Ku, Ku Klux Klan and anti-Semitism, as you mentioned, on the rise, American Jews sought alliances with Protestants and Catholics. So this is a, a very important story, I think. You write that, quote, the question of classification, were the Jews to be understood primarily as a race, a nation, or religion, proved crucial to that endeavor, close quote. Can you tell us how religious freedom talk figured in here and the result? Yeah, absolutely. So um, anti-Semitism in the early 20th century in the United States, as well as in Eastern Europe and in Germany, where, of course, in the 1930s, the Nazi party is on the rise, um, was often, was, was probably more seen as a racial issue than as a religious issue. I mean, it was both, right? <laughs> but but Jews were seen as a racial minority. I mean, um, there were signs on storefronts saying in the United States, in parts of the United States, saying no Jews or Negroes allowed, you know. Um, and so, you know, Jews were discriminated against as a racial group, they were uh, there were violent anti-Semitic attacks on Jews. Jews were kind of caricatured as having, you know, big noses, seen as having kind of racial traits, racially inferior. Um, the connections between racial and religious identity are so tightly connected in American history. We haven't had time today to get into that question, but there, um, this is, you know, you, you asked earlier, and I didn't quite get to that part of the question about um, how Catholic immigrants and Jewish immigrants come to be seen as white in America. And um, that, you know, there, there's a long history of whiteness, some of your listeners, you know, may think of whiteness as pretty self evident. But in fact, you know, when Italian immigrants first came to the United States, they weren't seen as fully white. When Jewish immigrants first came to the United States, they weren't seen as fully white. And so how do they become to claim, lay claim to whiteness, right? And the historians of, of whiteness have given lots of explanations for this. And um, my intervention here is to say that um, Religious freedom talk is one avenue by which some of these immigrant groups come to claim whiteness, and they do so by um, positioning themselves as religious minorities rather than racial minorities. So this is particularly clear in the um, in the Jewish case. But going back to the Spanish American War, when American Catholic leaders claimed, you know, they, they, they wanted to be able to, um, to have a leading role in colonial authority in the Philippines, and particularly, of course, in religious leadership in the Philippines. Um, and so they saw themselves as kind of the civilizing force, the civilizing agents. And, in, you know, in so doing, they were saying, you know, we are the best equipped to be the kind of teachers of American freedoms. Catholicism is also a, um, an, an all-American religion, right? And doing, by, by doing that, they are rebutting... Um, they're also kind of implicitly, and the way this worked back in the United States is to rebut Protestant claims that Catholicism is inherently tyrannical, inferior, that Catholic immigrants are um, inferior, are not fully white. And so American Jews are kind of doing the same thing in the middle of, I mean, at various points in American history. But 
in the early 20th century, in the 1920s and 1930s, when there's a lot of really nasty anti-Semitism in the United States, as there has been again in recent years, in fact. Um, but Jews are saying, we're not a racial minority. We are an all-American religion. We are, very, we are committed to religious freedom. Jewish intellectuals are writing histories of American religious freedom, celebrating Roger Williams, who was the founding father of Rhode Island, who's known as a kind of pioneering figure of religious freedom. Jews are kind of positioning themselves in that legacy and saying how Judaism it's not just Protestants that are committed to religious freedom. In Judaism are the core principles of, of, um, of Judeo-Christian ideals and American freedom and religious freedom in particular. Jews are champions of American religious freedom. It's Christians, right? If they are persecuting Jews, they are the ones who are violating religious freedom. And so there again, Jews are, the, are now laying claim to this kind of all-American ideal and positioning themselves as a religious minority rather than a racial minority, rather than a national minority. And so that's a way that, um, you know, to, to, to answer your question, how Jews, uh, American Jews, in this period are defining them, trying very hard. I mean, they don't always, of course, they're always countervailing voices um, within the Jewish communities as well as um, right. by uh, others who, but, but Jews start to position themselves as a real, as a, as an, as a religion on the American landscape. And, you know, the tri-faith movement, kind of Protestant Catholic Jews, a major organization here is the National Conference of Christians and Jews. And they would send out traveling, um, a, a priest, a Catholic priest, a Protestant minister, and a Jewish rabbi to give joint talks, right, on various topics traveling around the United States. Um, and often they would be talking about issues of religious toleration and religious liberty. Um, and so that's kind of positioning both Jews and Catholics, but in this period, really, Jews for Jews in particular was the most urgent because of the global climate um, that as as a religious group and as fully American. So religious freedom is that if played correctly, by religious minorities is the ticket to become fully American, to join this group that used to be just Protestant, right? right? Early on. And then Catholics came on board, and then the Jews, so then it was Catholic, you know, Protestant, Catholic, Jew. That religious right. freedom was used to build this. Is that yes. fair? Yes, okay. that's right. That's right. Now, towards the other part of this story, uh, uh, I think we should talk about. Uh, towards the end of the chapter about Jewish identity and the tri-faith movement, you write this, that the emphasis on religious freedom tended to obscure the ongoing American problem with race by framing its concerns in religious rather than racial terms, defining both anti-Semitism and anti-Catholicism as religious hatreds, the tri-faith movement helped to fold those once considered racially distinct from the Anglo-Saxon, the Irish, Italians, Poles, and especially Jews, into a singular category of whiteness. This is what you just already told us. But now we read, this made it even more difficult for African Americans to escape the burdens of race. Can you unpack this for us a little bit? I'll do my best. Yeah, I mean, maybe the simplest way to explain this is just to say, not everybody has equal access to whiteness, right? Nobody, not everybody was able to um, use religious freedom or other levers to 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 access whiteness, and whiteness kind of as whiteness expanded to include European immigrants rather than having a kind of more of a stepping stone of a racial hierarchy, right? It became even more of a racial white-black binary. And so African-Americans are left on the bottom of that. Um, and that quote that you just read, I use as a kind of 
I mean, that that's the last part of this chapter because it's a transition to the last chapter of the book where I'm talking about African Americans and religious freedom, which is a much less rosy picture, right? Although African Americans certainly did um, make their own appeals for religious freedom and sometimes successfully so, their religious traditions were very often seen as too political, you know, their religious freedom demands because they were inevitably intertwined with protests against racial suppression, right? Were seen as um, as too political, not legitimately religious issues. And so there's a kind of distinction there between religion and politics that was used against them. And um, for the National Conference of Christians and Jews that I described, I mean, it's a complicated story, right? And I've actually had some pushback from other historians on this point because they've pointed out that the National Conference of Christians and Jews was also involved in anti-racist organizing later in its history. But what I see in the sources and in the period that I'm writing about in particular is that um, the the traveling groups of, you know, Catholic priest, Protestant minister, and Jewish rabbi never didn't, you know, didn't include any black pastors or black religious leaders and tended towards a kind of celebratory narrative of American of American freedoms, right? Um, and so if you have a um, if you, I think one danger with the celebration of American religious freedom is that you um, you miss the racial oppression that is happening um, and is the overwhelming story and the overwhelming experience for people of color in the United States. And so the National Conference of Christians and Jews did, I think, fall into that trap where they um, start to, you know, America's the land of freedom because we have religious freedom and religious diversity, but it doesn't quite look that way from the perspective of African Americans who are fighting um, really violent, you know, uh, KKK lynchings and um, Jim Crow's legalized segregation and poverty, right? It doesn't so much look like a land of freedom. So the kind of religious freedom, celebratory religious freedom talk worked to mask that. And, you know, in fact, that was pointed out at the time by Black leaders who who said um, all of this kind of like American religious freedom is, is really hiding the true story. Um, it was also pointed out at times by people in other parts of the world. For example, when American Protestants, Catholics, and Jews got together to to condemn violation of religious freedom in Russia, where there had been violent pogroms, this is a little bit earlier at the very beginning of the 20th century, violent pogroms against Jews in Russia um, as a violation of... Um, of Jewish religious freedom, um, Russian diplomats wrote back and they said, basically, you guys are hypocrites because how come you're condemning us for violating the religious freedom of Jews when that's not state policy? I mean, yes, we regret that there was mob violence against Jews, um, but, and, and, I don't mean to be excusing the anti-Semitic pogroms in Russia. They were horrible. Right. But but the point that the Russians made in response was quite valid, that the Americans were being hypocritical because they might trumpet their own, you know, they might celebrate their own country as a paragon of religious freedom. But what about the racial violence directed against African Americans that was not only, I mean, was was institutionalized and legalized state violence against African Americans right. at the same time? It's very important, I think, uh, 
to know more as much as we can about the history of this idea we call religious freedom as a governing principle in the United States. Tisa, as we conclude, uh, do you want to share any lessons or takeaways from the book, either in terms of important historical transformations you were charting or in terms of helping us better understand the present moment? Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, I think the biggest takeaway for me is that religious freedom doesn't mean one thing. You know, it means different things to different people. Um, and that in my view of how we ought to understand this principle moving forward, I think we all need to have a little um, humility, first of all, about um, what counts as religion, right? I think too often in American public discourse now, as well as in the past, when we say religion, what we have in mind is is Christianity and not just Christianity, but particular kinds of Christianity. And that religious freedom and what gets counted under the within the purview of religious freedom is too often defined by the concerns of those kind of majority religious groups. And so we need to have a little humility and think a little more expansively about who gets to lay claim to this in America, um, in the United States everybody who's here gets to lay claim to this freedom and to other freedoms. And so, um, you know, their religious traditions or their um, lack of religious traditions ought to have kind of equal um, privileges <laughs> within this ideal. And so just, um, you know, be careful not to assume you know what gets covered by religious freedom. Um, and also that religious freedom, I don't think should have the sort of controlling power that it needs to be balanced by other principles of, um, of inclusion and equality and justice and equity. Um, it's, it's not the only Amer it's not the only principle. It's not the only value that we hold. Thank you. We have been talking with Tisa Wenger, Associate Professor of American Religious History at Yale Divinity School, about how and why religious freedom has been used in American history, using her book, Religious Freedom, A Contested History of an American Ideal, which, as she said, has been released in paperback. So we encourage all the listeners to go and uh, find it on the bookshelf and, uh, and read it. We hope listeners come away from today's podcast understanding a little more about religion, what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion and see how necessary the idea of religious freedom as a governing principle is for America to fulfill its role in the world. Be sure to follow our podcast series, Religion and the American Experience, which can be done easily by clicking on the podcast tab at Story of American Religion. Org. Thank you, Tisa, for being with us. It's very enlightening, and I hope you've enjoyed the time with us as well. I've enjoyed the conversation, and good luck with the podcast series. The podcast series, Religion in the American Experience, is a project of the National Museum of American Religion. Episodes are released each Monday starting October 19, 2020, through the end of the year, on Podbean, under Story of American Religion, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify.